Hey everyone, quick disclaimer before we get into this podcast, I have to apologize. Um, The audio on my microphone, again, I was changing mic settings for a different project, brought it back to this computer, forgot to change the settings back. Um, So unfortunately, a lot of the audio out of my microphone is peaking and is not, I think, my best work. With that said, I think overall the cast and stuff is great. We had a great discussion this time. Um, audio is great on both Jake and Chris's end, um, but I did it again. I've done this in the past, and I just want to apologize just as a heads up. Um, but otherwise, content is good. We appreciate you so much for listening, and um, we'll see you soon. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Pocket Change Podcast. Uh, I am one of your hosts, Zakiel, otherwise known as rainy day collectibles online also this podcast is about the world of collectibles <laughs> so uh if you're interested in the world of tcgs and all that stuff this is the podcast for you i am here with uh two of my co-hosts chris otherwise known as wolf of tin street how's it going it's going well how about you good and jake otherwise known as pokenomics how's it going good going going good excited for the conversation as always yeah super super pumped um, quick announcement. This will be the first podcast that if you prefer to listen, um, in audio format through a podcast player, you'll be able to find, I'm setting up the RSS feeds and all that stuff right now. If you just search pocket change podcast online, uh, through either Spotify or Apple podcasts, you'll be able to find it. There may be a, a small lag. I'll leave the links in the description of this video. Um, and if you're listening to this via the spec, the collect and spec podcast, um, I'll, I'll upload this episode and then put the, the links, um, in the description of those show notes as well. So, um, I'm super excited, man. I, I had like a great week in sales and <laughs> life is good right now. <laughs> um, our first topic that we go over each and every week is what's going on in each of our worlds. What are we seeing? What are you guys seeing? Uh, I mean, at least on my end, uh, I have now sold out of everything flesh and blood that I own. So that should give you an indication. So there you go. That's how I'm doing. Wow. Uh, uh, I mean, it was mostly chat, that? Yeah. but I just had to find a, I just had to find somebody who was willing to pay me some bulk rates to get rid of it. Cause I, I never, I will, I will just never sell anything below 50 cents. It's just not, even then that's really not worth my time. I try and sell only on direct cause I sell predominantly on TCG at that point. But, um, I don't like everything that I've seen. I mean, I think I, mean, I think you'll talk to this more in terms of your opportunities later, Zakiel. But I think the outskirt TCGs. Now you could turn around and tell me this is the perfect time to buy in, uh, but as you guys know, I'm very risk averse. So I see everything plummeting. I want to get out. I've already made a tremendous amount of profit off of it. I'm happy to jump back in if I see things turning. Um, but that's yeah, that's just my my sentiment on it right now. I'll. Uh, I'll re I'll reinvest if I feel more secure, but right now I just don't like, I don't feel, I feel like I'm sitting on quicksand on that turf. So I'm out and I might hop back in now and then on set releases, but uh, yeah. So what's the, what's the market sentiment? What's your thesis for what has happened? Is it the entire market as a whole is cooled down? Is it the appeal of the collectability is like, you know, just what's the quick kind of breakdown? Uh, my my belief is that the collectors are panicking because they were all trying to invest in a card game that you shouldn't be investing in. And because of that, uh, like cold foils have gone from 1,100 some down to 400 over the past two weeks. And they actually did it over 10 days. You have sales data. Uh, but they, they've just absolutely plummeted. And now what I have seen on the other end of things, though, is that uh, 
unlimited cards have actually picked up tremendously in sales, which is great. That means more people are trying to play the game, which is tremendous. However, I just see a great period of fluctuation. Nobody's really sure where the market should land. I'm not, uh, I'm not smart enough or I'm not a gambler. It's one or the other. I'm not sure. So I'm just going to wait. I think the prices of Unlimited are way too cheap now to be worth my time. So while it is positive for the game itself, it's not a market that I really want to be involved in. It's just sounds a little arrogant. It's not worth my time. Uh, so I'll focus on other areas which are much more worthy and or at least of value, monetary value to my time. And then I'll circle back if the playing community can rise, honestly, to the occasion, provide value to those cards again. But the the high end stuff, I just think is... If you're a buyer and you're interested in that kind of risk, it's a field day. Um, but if you are holding right now and you thought that was going to be an investment, you're going to lose possibly triple digits in percentage wise on what you put into it. So um, I don't like this, the fluctuations that I'm seeing, even though I have that thesis. Like, I think that's a solid one. I mean, also, the other thing that I don't like is that uh, vendors like Channel Fireball and Star City Game, which I think are the two biggest holders, I think, of sealed product are trying to out their unlimited at what I would say egregiously low, like very close to distributor costs, which tells me they have too much and they just want to out it. So you now it doesn't that all of these are just warning bells to me. It's like one, two, three. Um, I'll, I'll enter back in when I feel safer. Quick other follow up there. What is what do you want to see um, that ecosystem or community do like what would it take for you to be able to get back in apart from far from like the actual pricing stuff but like what is what is the required growth need to look like well it's going to circle back to pricing stuff i want to say at least 20 unlimited cards be greater than five dollars of value right now i think there's like three so and that's in yeah in like the the rainbow foils that's what it is i mean i like the following that it's got where it where it has holds is very uh intimate but i mean you know i talked to a a game store owner in california and they're like this thing is huge everybody loves it then i talked to somebody else in pennsylvania and they're like well this game is obviously dead which tells me this is very regionalized it's very localized to different game stores different communities and if i saw a more broader sentiment just across flatly across these store owners people who i think are going to have kind of the grassroots know-how just a more generalized consensus of, oh yeah, I at least know what it is. Somebody at my store plays it. Then I'd feel a lot more comfortable going back in. Cool. Awesome. Thanks so much for sharing. Uh, Jake, do you want to go next? Uh, What's going on for me this week? Um, So I missed out on a, a big card, very expensive card that I was going after um which was unfortunate so that's sort of my my big news and unfortunate news of the week um uh what else is going on buying buying a little bit here and there um certain things i've been looking at really delving into numbers this week i went through every single set in pokemon and looked at the population reports and how quickly cards are coming back so i feel like i'm pretty grounded right now in data um which feels good. Feels like I have a, a good under, good understanding of, of where the market is right now and where it's going to go in terms of that supply side for for PSA graded cards specifically. Um, and the numbers are looking good for the things that I've <laughs> been talking about and investing in myself. So that 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 feels good to see the data come back to support my thesis. Um, yeah. So and I think prices are actually reflecting that too. 
decently on some things. On other things, they seem to be not caring about the supply, and we'll see how how, how that plays out. So I'm, I'm watching that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, picking up things here and there. Um, haven't sold anything. Um, not actively trying to sell anything at the moment. I there there are some things I was going to sell if I had gotten this card. I was going to I had already earmarked a number of things to sell <laughs> to to recoup some of the the money from from what this big purchase would have been. Um, Hundred thousand dollars plus purchase, uh, so it would have been a big one. But um, but yeah, that's that's how it goes sometimes. And um, yeah, the market seems good. I'm uh, I'm enjoying browsing on eBay. I'm 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 gonna definitely be watching this PWCC auction block coming up for Pokemon specifically. Interested to see um, where prices settle. I might be bidding on some things and picking some things up depending on the prices. So um, definitely more worth my time. With some of these lower prices, like I just wasn't paying attention for months and months because it just wasn't worth the time to sit there and watch all these auctions go double, triple what I'd be willing to pay. But now that they've come down a lot on certain items, and I'm also seeing a lot of people selling certain items, you know, like base at first edition, there are tons of base at first edition on this block, um, stuff like that. I'm interested to see how that it's really becoming that seller's market or excuse me, that buyer's market that PWCC used to be for a long time, where often you'd get really good deals on PWCC over the last six months. For, and for those of you who are new to, to the hobby, PWCC has been the worst place to buy. <laughs> like it's basically been the most overinflated prices, the most attention, you know, on most items. Whereas before that, it was actually the other way because it was a place where even though there was a lot of attention, they would list like five, six of the same item in the same block. And that would push, at times, push the prices down, particularly on, on one or two of the items that you could get. So um, that would fall sort of below some of the others. There were some weird things that would happen there. So yeah, so I'll be watching that. Um, spending a lot of time with my collection. I'm going, I'm, I'm looking right now, I was looking through just, I just have like, like tons and tons of just like, um, like gold stars, um, Charizards in here, lots and lots of like shadowless, uh, starters that are like in like seven, eight, nine condition. So I'm going through them again to check to see if I want to send them in when I want to send them in, trying to plan that out. Eventually I, I might, depending on where prices settle, that's where I'm at. So I had a decision if I wanted to quickly send all of this out, out a few months ago and then try and flip into the hype. And I decided to send out about, I think I sent out about maybe five, four to 500 cards total. And then I kept an, a lot of them that maybe eventually I will sell, but I just felt was too risky for me. Um, Cause I wasn't sure when the prices were going to correct. I wasn't sure how long I was going to get it back. And I didn't feel like the margins were as um, uh, intriguing for me to take that risk and that gamble. So I sort of held on to those cards. So that's where I'm at. How about you, Zakiel? What's uh, what's going on in your world? Yeah. Um, quick uh, before I answer that, quick follow up. What do you think is the as someone who is a hardcore investor in Pokemon? What is the general hardcore um, collector sentiment at the moment? Um, I think for the most part, for people who've been in it in a while, we feel pretty good. Um, we're happy to see some of the prices go down and be able to buy things we really want for, for cheaper. And we feel so far that prices haven't gone down too much that we've 
lost so much of our gains on the on the on the cards that we've been holding that it's 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 too painful so it almost like the fact we can start buying again and getting certain things that we think in the long run will do well has almost offset some of the losses on certain cards that we may have had although none of us really have any losses because we you know the majority of us were not buying at all this year like none of my friends were buying at all this year unless it was to flip immediately um, we all saw, felt the exact same way about the market and just kind of skipped it for eight months. And we're like, we'll be here <laughs> long into the future and we'll be here when it's over and we're not going to, uh, buy into this, this, this craziness. So, so I think, I think we feel good. Um, uh, you know, I, I, maybe a little burned out on the content front. Um, I think it's part of why I like doing like conversations like this or just kind of like more casual or hanging out. It's like, you know, we'd be doing this whether or not we were doing it online or not. So maybe a little, there's a little bit of that sentiment I'm hearing from people just kind of coming offline, going offline, hanging out more with their collections, spending time with their cards more, um, spending time outside in other hobbies with their friends, <laughs> you know, rejoining life, that that sort of thing, I think is the, probably the the general sentiment. But I think that most of the people who watch my channel and, and, and most of the people who, you know, have a, have a deep passion and, and interest in sort of that, that high end kind of analytical finance stuff, I think are not too shaken by this period. And, and it's just sort of like are adapting, we could say, um, adapting to it. Yes. Yeah, so I completely agree. I'm seeing the same, I'm seeing the other side of that behavior in Pokemon or pardon me, in Yu-Gi-Oh, hmm. where I think there was this natural progression, as there kind of always is, whenever TCGs get really hot, of people drawing parallels to say, hey, Pokemon is is getting really hot, Yu-Gi-Oh is following suit. Um, and right now you're starting to see weird things of like, the parallels between the high-end Yu-Gi-Oh of where they equate, like what the most valuable card in in the hobby should be is typically the original printing something like first edition lob blue eyes mm -hmm. and similarly to sdk which is the the starter deck kaiba one it's the 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 iconic anime um blue eyes white dragon artwork and what you're effectively seeing is i think a lot of people who were hoping that as pokemon is is exploding they were going to jump on the Yu-Gi-Oh bandwagon and try to get in early to get a similar growth you know three to six months later um, and it did do well. And Yu-Gi-Oh has done, you know, two to three times over what it was a year ago. I was buying cards in the three hundred to five hundred dollar range for my collection, and those same cards today are, you know, approaching anywhere between fifteen hundred to two thousand dollars. And that's somewhere the market appears to be fairly stable at that point. But there were, uh, to to your uh, point about PWCC, there were moments where cards were suddenly becoming twenty five thousand, thirty thousand dollar cards. Well, why is why is SDK Blue Eyes so expensive, or why is DDS so expensive? And they reach these new price points, and I think um, the market has certainly retraced. I think on on many of the cards, about forty percent. I think the gem tier stuff is is still fairly stable, um, but it's just been very interesting to me because it's very obvious the same certs are kind of coming back up for auction again, and they're going for less than what they were. Um, you saw that, you know, a couple of the more um, identifiable Pokemon trophy level cards, you're starting to see that same thing. Um, but most importantly is that 
I still think Yu-Gi-Oh is an incredibly unoptimized market and the amount of opportunity that is coming up is absolutely insane. Like I haven't seen anything like this for years where you can literally go on TCG player right now. Like if you type in the secret rare Egyptian God cards, you can get raw copies for like five to 600 grade them. You're not always going to get a 10, but even a nine is going to be $1,500. Mm-hmm. So if you take $5,000 and, you know, and granted, I don't own anything. I'm not, I'm not shilling. I'm not gassing up the cards. But there's just there's so many weird inefficiencies of cards that the graded premium doesn't make any sense because they're not actually that rare. There's retraces coming down on cards that people believed were going to be the next mega stonks. There's just so many collections um, that are coming up for sale either through eBay or Reddit or Twitter or Instagram of people who are just like, hey, you know, like this is a good card. I like it, but either I don't want it anymore. Or now that crypto's come down, like some of my fun money, it can't be fun money anymore. There's a lot of different things happening. Um, and I, I'm just super, super bullish on the future of Yu-Gi-Oh. I don't think we're anywhere near, you know, rocket ships and, and moon stocks or whatever, diamond hands or whatever that, that culture is. But I think for the, the next 18 to 24 months, like Yu-Gi-Oh is definitely where I want to be. Hmm, interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I don't know enough about Yu-Gi-Oh to, to really respond, you know, uh, um, but it's interesting to hear you say to say it so explicitly as because usually you talk in a little bit more of a tempered, you know, uh, uh, manner. So and I think we all do. And so I think that that like when I say I, I talk the exact same way when I say I think that something's probably a good thing. I'm probably like 90 percent sure to, to be, you know, to be saying it publicly. Um, but yeah, very interesting. I, I like um um, I've been getting into Yu-Gi-Oh a little bit and doing a little bit of research and, you know, I went down the Korean Yu-Gi-Oh rabbit hole just to familiarize myself with all of the different sets in, in a cheap way so I could get a sense of what I liked, what I felt was undervalued. Um, I, it, it can, the reprints concern me in Yu-Gi-Oh, um, just the huge amounts of reprints of like the best art and you have like the, like the, like the SDK blue eyes in a cooler prismatic rant version from like a five dollar box you know and that that concerns me when when we're paying 50 100 someday 500,000 for 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 you know a, a PSA 10 you know I, I it's still if you have people who love Yu-Gi-Oh enough and have the money they'll pay those prices because they want that chase and they want that sort of thing but it does add that extra burden of like there are such cheap options that are like, you know, cool, potentially cooler looking, even if they don't, they're not cooler feeling because they're not as rare and they don't have that, that history feel to them necessarily. But um, that just concerns me about taking the plunge on some of that stuff. It's part of why I actually like the GX era better. And we've talked about this. Um, you know, I know that the popularity is of course going to be lower, particularly until Yu-Gi-Oh takes off. I think if Yu-Gi-Oh became more robust and more people were into it, they would trickle into that GX era thing. They'd probably rediscover the anime from that. You know, uh, I think like the, the, particularly the cover arts, like the, um, the, the, the cover characters or whatever, the ones that are on the, the boxes themselves from each of those sets, I think are interesting they're so much rarer. They don't have the reprints. 
they have those ultimate art, you know, the ultimate versions that are, you know, quite difficult to pull. Um, some of them only exist in like the hobby boxes, which, you know, you could only have gone in Europe or there, there's all sorts of things that intrigue me there. They're extremely difficult to grade, particularly the ultimates because of the way that they were, um, yeah, printed, I guess they're just, they have a lot of like rolling roller issues or something I've been hearing. You know, I don't know. So I'm starting to immerse myself yeah. in, in what's happening, trying to listen to people who are in the know, trying to weed out maybe some of the BS and, and, and the hype in certain places and kind of bringing my own experience and perspective from Pokemon and kind of mapping it onto Yu-Gi-Oh! And we'll hopefully experience some successful results with that. But, um, for me, it, it's it's definitely a waiting game. I'm not I'm not jumping in until I feel very confident that I understand where the value is myself, and I think that that's something that I I really breached this year in the Pokemon community because so many people di- didn't you know just were jumping in and spending lots of money, and I just that's really where you get burned um, financially. You know, um, is is listening to one or two people who may or may not know, rather than listening to lots and lots of people and kind of then doing your own research and checking that research, checking what other people are saying, and um, and then in the end, sort of following uh, following your um, your 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 own conclusions, that sort of thing. So, but I'm I mean, a big fan of yeah, yeah. I'm just, I'm a big fan of the, uh, it's okay to make a few mistakes entering. You're always going to make those mistakes, but always understand you will make those mistakes every time you enter in and limit that, limit that damage and learn from there. Yeah. The, the other thing that is really interesting to me about Yu-Gi-Oh! is that there's been a, um, for the entirety of Yu-Gi-Oh!'s history, there was effectively like this chasm because Yu-Gi-Oh! is a playability based game for the most part, like the most expensive and desirable cards are the best outside of, you know, the original blue eyes stuff. OCG is the original card game. That's in Japan. TCG is the American version and OCG cards have never been legal to play and thus never had any interest from the American audience at all. So people were buying. I mean, now you're starting to see more people say, Oh my God, like, spell of mask blue there's an ultimate rare blue eyes that was released in 1998 that was only available in japan (laughs) like what what the heck and you're starting to see people really comb go back and comb through in the same way that you will hear many people in the pokemon community say like the japanese sets are actually you know like the top tier kind of stuff whereas english is the microwaved version or or whatever (laughs) i think the term is um is that there's just so many oppor- there's so much opportunity and the cards were just undervalued. When you're talking yep. about pure collectibles, the pops are incredibly small. You can legitimately get pop two, pop three, pop ten cards uh, that are twenty years old for like four hundred dollars. And while there is some nuance there, I'm not gonna. And again, I'm not gassing this up to say that this is the best thing since, since sliced bread. But there's some nuance. There's some nuance there to be like, is it? Does does that make sense? Like if modern cards are twice as expensive as an OCG card that has iconic artwork of a playable card, an iconic card, and has literally has pop five and there's no sealed product because it's 20 years old, is that better than going and buying a you know a 2020 collector's rare or whatever? And I, I don't think it is. I don't, I don't think anyone would argue that. But 
that is a Yu-Gi-Oh specific thing that has not been optimized. And so when I'm looking at it and I have all of the knowledge of just knowing how these things have operated for the past 10 years that I've been in it, I'm like, okay, something is wrong here. Like something is, is really wrong here. Um, so just pay attention. If that's something that you're, you're dipping your toes into or, or maybe just revisiting for fun, take a look and, and just look at the pops in PSA and just kind of see what the prices are on eBay and, and do your own, make your own mental model of like what you would be most interested in and, and see if those prices make sense. Cause I don't think they do. And then again, and there's like pop one cards in Japan that are $5,000. I'm like, I don't think any, I don't think you can actually sell this. Like, I don't think this is, I don't think this is like sellable. I, I, I don't think this is a sellable item. So anyway, lots of nuance, do the dig and do the homework. Um, let's, uh, start with our first listener question. So I have so much energy today. I'm happy. Jealous. <laughs> um, energy. What's that like? Oh my God. Kai Oak Bacon asks, as mentioned, please discuss condition rarity versus absolute rarity. This is something we could do an entire episode on, but just to answer this question, I see this being a huge issue given how different companies grade. Obviously, CGC has come out of the gates with tens being almost unobtainable personally i hated this initially but now i appreciate it because i think psa has changing their has changed their graded standard i know jake always talks about buying the card not the grade but in looking at condition rarity through the pop reports this isn't possible i've got psa 10s that should be eights nowadays but in the pop report it will always be a 10 distinguishing condition rarity is going to be next to impossible going forward, especially for cards like PSA 10 first edition Charizard that are so many, there are so many zero one ten or two or, Oh, pardon me. There are so many zero cert one cert and two certs that are PSA nines that should be PSA six to eights. Um, do you think CGC tens will catch up if not overtake PSA tens? Uh, and where do they compare to BGS tens, I guess is the kind of general example, but high level condition rarity versus absolute rarity. So, I mean, quickly, just, just, so absolute rarity, just to define these things. So a- absolute rarity, meaning um, uh, the, the amount of that card in the world condition rarity, meaning the amount of that card in each grade in the world. So, you know, uh, um, when you have an abs- absolute rarity, it's and and items that are really, you know, there are only a hundred ever printed. These types of things generally, there's this really interesting debate right now, and I don't know. I could take this question in a lot of different ways. So let me think here for one second. Um, so what was what was the crux of his rather than going off in that tangent? What was the crux of what 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 Kai was wondering? The the crux is one where do CGC tens kind of fall in the hierarchy of other grading companies? And then also when you're buying cards, like how do we, how are you going to evaluate condition rarity versus absolute rarity when comparing something like a first edition Charizard that where the data may be flawed as opposed to something that I, I, I kind of think of the trophy market in a way that it's very obvious that the condition doesn't rarity doesn't matter. The absolute rarity does to some yeah. extent. It's interesting. Does it matter? Does the, does the condition matter also in, and, and we've seen historically that it does, right? If we want to look at a, in an older field, like comic books, the difference between like the high, there are only a hundred action comics roughly that were found number one. 
but the top ones that, you know, the very, very top ones, you know, that were like 9.2 or something, 9.4, um, went for many, many millions more than, than the lower graded ones. So, but I actually think eye appeal becomes more important on those types of cards and should be more important because I, I would much rather buy a trophy that looks nice, even if it's a middle grade than a trophy that I can see like very clearly a dent through the hollow and it's really ugly looking and I'm putting it up and I'm looking at it and it's, you know, that would really bother me. So I think that, that, that can come into play in terms of CGC. Um, yeah, CGC tens are better than PSA tens, uh, on, on, on not all PSA tens, but, but on average, I feel more confident buying a CGC 10. I think if I was getting, if I could get a CGC 10 or a PSA 10 at the same price, I would choose the CGC 10. Um, despite what the market thinks right now, I think the market would probably choose the CGC 10 as well and pay more for that at the moment. Um, I certainly would. Uh, I think when you get into the 9.5, that's where it becomes, uh, you know, I, I, I think the PSA is more valuable, probably should be more valuable, particularly as PSA has gotten gotten more more um, um, stingy with their tens, we can say, probably. Um, where all of that goes, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a big question. Uh, and to me, it goes to this idea of, so if it becomes more and more apparent over time that some of these old cert cards or middle cert cards, there are lots of eights that are that are labeled as tens what are the value of that of it of, versus a 10 that is newly graded whether that's in cgc or or bgs or or psa and over time does the market um yeah buy the card and not the grade and you know and what i say is not buy the card and not the grade i'm sure i've said that before but what you're really doing is you're buying the card and the grade <laughs> And you're putting a percentage of of how much you value the grade versus how much you value the card. And I think that that's a that's a personal decision that that people have to make out there. I think very clearly people pay a lot more for tens. You can have a beautiful nine go on PWCC auction right now, and a not so great ten. You know, as long as the ten isn't just like unbelievable dog crap and like completely obvious, very likely the ten is going to sell almost at the price of the last ten, if not you know, 10%, maybe 20% lower at the worst is what we generally see. Whereas a PSA 9, particularly if it's a low pop card where there's there there's very few 10s and a lot of 9s, that could sell for one-tenth the price, one-twentieth the price, even though it's the exact same quality of card or roughly the same quality of card. And I don't see that changing. I don't think that's ever going to change. Um, it might get closer and people might think more about that and care more about that. But I don't see it changing any anytime soon, at least. Um, um, so I would say buy the card and the grade. Now, I do think there's a chance that it could change somewhere down the line and also that it could get closer. So why I say buy the card and the grade is because you should factor that in. If you can get, like, I would rather pay 5 to 10% more for a great, great looking PSA 10. Okay, so if, you, if I could choose between the two, I would pay, I would pay up for that. But probably not much more than that right now in the current market and you know and uh, i'd love to hear what you guys think but that's that's where i'm at with all that and then absolute rarity versus rarity and which which you should buy and invest in and flip and it's a, yeah it's an, it, we could have a whole episode on that um i'm a big fan of absolute rarity i think people have really missed the boat 
Um, and, and you can still hop on the boat on certain things. I hope you don't, because I still want to buy them all. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, but I, I think people have really, are, you know, and, and as I dig into the numbers of these pop reports are really, um, yeah, they're, they're undervaluing absolute rarity and either correctly valuing, you know, in, I think in some cases, I think there are still cheap set cards in PSA 10. Um, uh, so I do think condition rarity should have value and does matter and is historic and important to have those cards in perfect condition. So that's, that's where I'm at. What do you, what do you guys think of all of that? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I'm less experienced on this front than both of you. So I'll say, take my opinions with a grain of salt, but my, and this is me kind of falling back on what I think to be fundamental is just chasing absolute rarity, because if something has 40,000, it's got like a 40,000 count on the pop report across all grades, doesn't matter. Just for the sake of argument, say there's you know 10,000 PSA tens and you can say, okay, there's a lot of those that were misgraded or, you know, were graded more leniently earlier on as they tighten ship. On the other hand, if there's only 10 PSA 10s and one of them might be incorrectly graded, yeah, it might still be kind of a historical relic, but there's only 10. <laughs> so there is that element of now you've taken the absolute rarity of the card and now we're, we've kind of taken it into the grading realm. So say it was like from a, it wasn't in like a full blown set, it was in some supplementary, it was a trophy card, whatever it was. Um, so there's a lot fewer of them out there. Now there's a lot fewer of them graded. So in my mind, that's that's a, basically an absolute rarity on both fronts. And that's what I would want to chase. However, I do like what Jake mentioned, which I would not have thought to verbalize, which is kind of like an eye candy test. Like, does it actually look good? Is this a nice card? Which is something I think I almost always take into account. But again, I wouldn't have thought to verbalize. So I do think that is also uh, very important. Uh, as for the CGC 10s, I... I know I'm going to branch a little off that. I can't wait for anybody to please just get Surface software to look so that way you can be consistent. It's not that hard to do. This technology exists. I don't think we have the the uh, money in this industry to pull it in, although I think that's kind of a, a – actually, I do think we do. I just don't think any company would, would take that commitment. But. Have you seen Beckett's website? You're asking for, <laughs> you're asking for machine learning and they can't put together a – a functioning website. Go ahead. Sorry. If Chase Bank can scan my checks in, they can scan a card. By, uh, I'm not sure we're going to get sponsored by Beckett anymore after that. <laughs> PSA. Yeah. You know it's okay. That would mean they need internet to watch our feed. <laughs> One quick point before you jump in, Zekiel, that I thought of. Another really important point is the the issue with condition rarity is the lower graded stuff acts as an anchor on the tens and the nines and the eights. And we're really going to see that on set cards over the next five to 10 years as this stuff gets absorbed. Because if you can get a five, six, seven, and eight, if there are tens of thousands of those of a certain vintage card, and you can get those for $20, $15, $10, are you really spending $100,000 on a 10? If you can get that same card in a 20, 25, 30, 40, $50 price range, Maybe, maybe not, but I think there's less, you're less likely. Whereas with trophy cards, it's like, you have no option. It, 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 they're, they're, you know, getting it in low grade, getting it in high grade, it's going to be extremely hard to find that card, you know? So it, it becomes, if you want that card at all, 
you have to pay a lot. That's the situation. And and when you have those fewer options, that's where you get those you can get those exponential increases in prices if you have a few people who have huge sums of money and 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 are willing to pay whatever it takes to to own that specific card, that specific art. And nothing will will replace it or can or can compete with it. So what do you think, Sakil? I think so I had a strong opinion when, when you started the conversation. Now I, I don't know how I feel because I think, so uh, the thing about absolute rarity is that obviously it, it, they are objectively rare items, but the problem is that your buyer pool shrinks. And I think that absolute ra- rarity is only really applicable to like the top half of a percent of each hobby. Um, just because like the average, even the above average collector is either never one, never going to have the budget to be able to, for the most part, be able to afford these kinds of things. And two, most people just don't even know, like they've ever heard of these things. Like the, the biggest branding stuff is a thing are the things that I believe you can, the things that are obtainable, right? The reason that Charizard is the face of Pokemon, whether you like it or not, is just because this is the most branded item. It's been printed. You can get different variants of the card um same thing with blue eyes and and many other kind of parallels in in a lot of hobbies (sighs) to answer your question about the pops um i don't know i i have tens that should not be tens and it made me frustrated after i bought it (laughs) um and i do think that is something that i don't want to say needs to be correct corrected over time but is certainly a thing that you need to keep in mind to your point of buying the card and the grade. That is very true. I'm starting to now upload all of my graded sales with scans just because I think it allows people to, to buy with more confidence to actually be able to see the card. Um, it's the reason why PWCC did so well as opposed to, you know, random guy just taking a phone, <laughs> a picture of a card um, on his phone. Otherwise, I don't know. I need to marinate on it a bit longer because it, it's kind of nuanced or it's very nuanced, obviously, but um, yeah, I don't know. I'll, I'll, I don't have much to say. <laughs> well, I think that's, that's something we talk about quite a bit. Right. And, and it goes into the, the whole flipping conversation versus investing and, and, you know, being patient and then, you know, cause I, I but I do think that, that my prediction is that, those trophy cards are the $2 million, $3 million, $4 million, $5 million cards someday, if any cards ever make it that much, and not your PSA 10 first edition Charizard. So I, I, I will throw it out there. That's what I believe. I believe it very strongly. Um, I don't see how that card gets there um, first. And, you know, and I've been saying it all year that I felt the Charizard was extremely overvalued this year and the trophy cards were undervalued or certain trophy cards are undervalued. And that's coming from a guy who has, you know, no stake in it yet, is trying to buy those. And so I'm literally talking against my own interest. Actually, guys, go buy the Charizard and sell me those stupid trophy cards that are terrible and aren't good investments and you should buy. Um, so, but, um, and I think from anyone who's been in the hobby for not i don't want to say anyone the majority of people who have been in the hobby for many years feel the same way and so i think that also speaks to the fact that that's going to be the case for you know as the hobby becomes older and more and is that people are going to be like i've seen a million first edition charizards 
that is something I don't see. That's something special there. That card. I've never seen that card in person. I only know one other person who's ever who, who has ever showed it, you know, on Instagram. That that sort of thing. Um Yeah. I think I would agree with that for the most part. But that's my guess, you know, um, and I could be proven and, and I may end up be being proven wrong, which will be interesting. You know, it'll be something I watch as time goes on. And if I start to feel like I'm going to be wrong, I'll, I'll let people know. <laughs> Next question from Blake Darie. Thank you for um, putting your name pronunciation in the comments this week. <laughs> uh, if you're willing to share, what was one of the worst speculative buys you made in your collecting career? Why did you buy in the first place? And what did you learn from the negative results? Thanks, guys. So uh, <laughs> I can't mention the specific one that I made. I will say, however, uh, when you buy something, whatever the strategy is, what I learned from it is stick to it. If you buy something that's going to be long term, hold to the fact that it's going to be long term. If you go in expecting it to be a short flip, take the short out, take the out. I feel there's that element of greed of, oh, it can be better or, oh, maybe it'll change. Maybe it'll switch. Just commit to that first instinct. I, I, I used to actually on my, because I, um, I'm very, uh, um, I don't know, over, I overcomplicate everything. I used to l literally write the reason why I was buying it. What format was I buying it for? You know, what, and I used to do this manually, mind you, and that was crazy. Um, but literally, so that way I would know when I look back, you know, 90, 120 days later, a year and a half later, this is what I got it for. And this is why, and this was the strategy going in. And just sticking to that was the biggest thing I learned. Uh, I could have, if I had stuck to that when I first entered into this game in 2018, I would be very wealthy right now. <laughs> a lot wealthier, I'll say that. But I kind of got tired of having capital tied in and I didn't have the patience or the chops because I didn't really fully understand what I was doing. So. Um, that would be just at least my key takeaway from it. Do you want to go, Zakil? I, I can take it last this time. Um, you go because I, I I don't know what I I haven't thought of anything yet. <laughs> so, I, yeah, it's been I have lost on only one card I've ever bought <laughs> so far. Um, which is insane, but it's, it's also, it just goes to show you like the time, the window that I got involved in all of this, which, which is, um, partially, well, I predicted to some degree and which is why I was in it and whether or not that was just complete luck or not, whatever, we can have that discussion, but it's pretty crazy. But so, I mean, I bought a, um, uh, a scorecard for $2,300 that I might not, that I probably couldn't sell for 2,300 right now. So that, that's probably my worst purchase. And I knew it going into it and I bought it as a collector. So I, I, I knew it was, a, it was a, probably a financial mistake to make it, but I hadn't seen any of that specific card come up. It so difficult to find. I just, I just paid up for it because I wanted it basically. Um, I would say financially, the worst decision I made was to buy my Tropical Wind trophy card. Because um, at the time, interestingly, I paid, I think, $9,000 for that card, which was market price, roughly, roughly speaking at the time. 
And um, it was not a bad decision because I love that card and I'm really happy to own it from a collector's perspective. But from an investor perspective, that card is probably worth anywhere between twenty and 40000 right now. A pretty wide range, somewhere in there. Certainly over twenty, probably, but anywhere between twenty and forty thousand. Um, I think the last one went for maybe twenty two, twenty three on auction or something like that. And and there was one before that I think went up to forty or thirty five. So some somewhere in there. Um, but if I had taken that money and done what I was doing with with the rest of what I was doing, which was buying ungraded collections, and and grading them myself and flipping them and, and, and um, you know, keeping the tens and that sort of thing, I could have made another few hundred thousand dollars from that. Like, no, like, like automatically that's what would have happened. Um, Cause that's what happened with all the other plays I was making at that time. And if I hadn't bought that card, I would have just kept doing what I was doing with the other stuff. And the reason I bought that trophy card was because I, didn't know if it would I, if someone bought that one I didn't know if another one would come up it was it's the type of thing where it was like I hadn't seen that card come up it was my opportunity to get it and as a collector I really wanted it um and I didn't expect that this crazy bull run was going to happen so soon so I thought I would have time to continue to buy these collections and and these set cards that I felt were probably the most undervalued because at that time I was buying you know you could get like PSA 9 first edition hollows from Watsi for anywhere between like 25 to $150. Um, that, that type of thing, you know, some of the more expensive ones were like 150 to 100, 300. Um, and if, yeah, if I had plowed that money into those cards, I would have seen a much bigger return, particularly if I had bought them raw and, and flipped them. So I don't know if there's a lesson to be taken in that, but I mean, I, I guess the lesson is something like if you put your money, a lot of money into, into a big item, instead of making a lot of smaller moves that might have, you might be able to flip and continue to move the money and, 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 you know, make more of a margin on. Um, and I guess the other lesson is that during high demand periods, often it's the set cards and the most recognizable stuff and the lowest price point stuff that sees the biggest move because you have a lot of new people coming in and the barrier to entry, both price wise, because that's a lower price and more people can afford a two to five, two to $1,000 card and just education wise and comfort level wise, it's much easier for someone to spend $500 on a card they had when they were a kid, than jump right into a hobby and spend a hundred thousand dollars or in this case, 30 to $40,000 on a card like this, that they don't, they don't know anything about and don't have a relationship to. So I think that, Going back, if I had if I had made just a purely investor decision, I would have gone for more of those specifically stayed in, in that Watsi and that in that set stuff, and that would have would have done better for me. And the Topson and the Level X stuff that I was doing. Um, so I guess that that's 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 mine. Um, but um, I'm sure that I will the stuff I'm buying now. I might I might see some losses on. So we'll we'll have to see. You know, in six months to a year, if I'm I might have some new new loss stories. <laughs> I I don't have any single like horrific transaction. Um, thinking back, that like I bought something for a lot of money and ended up selling it for less, but I did have. Pardon me. I do have a, a handful of cards throughout history that I've bought for, I bought 
two dozen copies at $50 each that I ended up selling for $35 or buying cards for a hundred and selling them for 70. It didn't happen too often. Um, my burns aren't typically for me losing money during business. They're for me not buying collections. Yeah. And the one thing that I learned is that when you have the opportunity to buy something that you think is a really good deal or is objectively rare, that may be slightly out of your budget or maybe a little bit, make you a little uncomfortable or may just may be the jump. Um, sorry, I got ganked. Um, <laughs> Uh, I think you should take it because I can name dozens and dozens of cards that are that I could have bought at the hundred dollar range that are multiple thousands, and this is across every single hobby this over the past ten years, um, because I just either didn't want to take the risk because I it felt odd to me to be able to make a long term decision like Chris said, or I was buying inventory saying hey this will be a good good hold for a year or two and then three or four months later I got you know attracted by the next shiny thing and said, you know, I'm going to drop these and go after this new thing. Um, but no, thankfully no horrific losses on my side. Um, but yeah, otherwise I, I think it's just missed opportunity, which in the end isn't really a loss. Um, but it's more of me not being comfortable enough to make the jump where, you know, the, the version of me three or four years ago wouldn't have been comfortable spe spending 10, $20,000, um, $50,000, Whereas now it's like, okay, not only I have more money to do it, but I have the familiarity, the confidence and the knowledge to be able to make my own thesis, make my own assumption, and then back it up with my, with my wallet, where I think uh, many people who are newer, and we had a conversation precast uh, with Chris, it, you go online and everyone believes they're an expert. And then the moment that they get, you know, you, you can, the people who are in the hobby can kind of see them a mile away that they may not know very much. And the moment they get tested, you know, they end up dropping. Uh, I think we're seeing that in crypto right now, right? Crypto is, is down, I think, about 50% from where it was a couple months ago. Um, you're obviously seeing it with different trading cards. Um, but I think it's, it's just kind of a financial behavior of like, this is my thesis. I'm going to stick with it. Um, and when it's time to buy, it's just committing to what you do. So not not exactly the right same answer. but yeah. well, I think that... that and part of why I think that we've been so successful also is, and will be frankly successful into the future, is that the patience, the calm, the consistency, um, and, and the self-confidence. And I think all of that stuff is crucial in long-term investing because there will be times when things do take a dip or you buy a smart item, you know, but it goes down in the short run and you need to hold on to that item and keep it. And then there may be other times when you can quickly recognize a bad item. You know, you can quickly recognize most of the time we, we just don't buy them. I think we, if not, you know, almost all the time we, we see people buying certain things and I take one look at that and I say, that's, it's really stupid. And there's a, I have a long list of crazy nonsense prices and I don't talk about them. I don't say, you know, there are all sorts of alternative arts in Pokemon right now in modern. They're selling for like 800 to $1,500, some of them in PSA 10. Stupid you know, absolutely stupid prices that make, you know, that make little, you know, absolutely no sense. Those people will very likely lose the majority of that investment um, and or just will do much worse than putting it in the types of items that I think I'm buying just, just to be really candid with, you know. Um, and I think that 
yeah, that comes from just experience and, and a game plan. And, you know, we'll see. I mean, we'll see. Only time will tell if you're right or not about those sorts of things. But um, I, I do think that that when you have success over over a long period in particular and consistency, you're, you're doing something right. So, um, uh, yeah. So I, so I think that, 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 um, you really get a good instinct for how to avoid those bad, those bad deals and the, those bad, where it just doesn't make sense. And I know for me, because there's so many things that do make sense, I'm very cautious about what I put my money into because I, because I know that there are going to be really good opportunities always. And so I'm, I tend to look for those really, really attractive opportunities. And I think that also helps me not lose. Um, because when I go into something, I'm feeling really very, very confident in it. Or if there's a good amount of risk in it, I'm looking for really huge upside potential to, to mitigate that. So the implied odds are really in my favor if I'm, if I'm taking on quite a bit of risk. Um, or I just really love it as a collector piece. And then it's not about an investment and you don't lose, you know, if that's your relationship to it. So, so yeah. I will, uh, I will add on just another one thing that I've learned. I, I lack the confidence of both Sakil and Jake. So <laughs> what I do when I want to hedge my bets, uh, is I like to, I never try and buy more than 40 of one item, but if I can, if I'm very confident on it, I will. Uh, and if I can then sell 12 of those 40 and it pays off for the other 28, I have a box of them. I still think they're going to continue to go up. And at whatever price point I feel it is best, because at that point for me, that's a free gamble. That's a free roll of the dice. I've made my money back. I get to sit on it. That's how I have made more of a habit in terms of rolling forward in terms of, oh, I got it right. It doesn't mean you need to sell the farm or it doesn't even necessarily mean that you need to, you know, chase, you know, I think you said it. And I think this is a really good term of chase, chase the new shiny thing. If you can protect yourself, make your cost zero, that's great because <laughs> now you're not, you're essentially play, playing with house money, at least in my mind, that's how I would phrase it. Uh, and I think that is definitely a strategy in terms of rolling it forward in terms of First of all, learning from yourself. Where did you get it right? You can literally look in a box and see what did you get right? What do they share? What do they not share? You know, what can you see? You know, and then you start to identify, oh, there's a pattern here. Oh, I got lucky here, etc. This is I have a trophy binder of all the cards that I've made money off of. I'll go back most times in six months and buy them again. And that's what goes in my trophy binder um, because they almost always go down. But if you're confident, I think if you're confident but not that confident into the future i think that's a really good way to just hedge your bet and try to just kind of roll it forward yeah it's a it's a confidence you know it's it's a um yeah it's a confidence to not listen to other people and to not listen to noise and to trust your own assessments i think that's that is so crucial um, when you understand why you're doing something, that is that is the most important thing. You know, be have your own agency, be your own thinker. And I think that if you don't have the ability to do that, it's likely because you're not educated enough. You don't have an interest in this. Um, and you're very likely going to lose a lot of money is the reality because you're going to be following the sheep and the herd and they're the ones that get slaughtered. You know, it's, it's the people who don't have a plan. So if you, if you're a buy, if you're a flipper and you have a plan, 
all the power to you. If you were a long-term value investor and you have a plan, all the power to you. I think that it's, there are a lot of different ways to make money. You know, it's the, the bull, you know, bulls make money, bears make money, sheep, you know, sheep or pigs get slaughtered depending on the, you know, uh, I've heard it both ways. Um, uh, it's very true. So, um, am I, am I lagging at all? How's my video and stuff? Uh, maybe half second, but okay. we record locally. So no, no problem. Okay, cool. I don't know if it's my computer or something. I'm going to try to close a window or two. All good. Um, the one thing I wanted to talk about, Chris, that you mentioned was playing with house money. And I think this is something that anyone who sells in any kind of any, anything in the world of collectibles, anyone who sells, whether it's sneakers or cards or whatever, tend to have the same goal of, of effectively operating with house money. If it's your career and your job and you need to withdraw money to, you know, for bills and stuff, it's a little bit different because cash flow is more important to you. But if you're a hobbyist collector, to your point of like, I have a spec, I will buy 40 copies, I'll sell half of them. And hey, now I have all of this free upside. I can either continue to sell it or I can hold it long term or I can just do whatever I want. And I think that is real wealth. Like those are the foundations of, of building wealth of, of like, hey, I've, I've generated all of this, this value, whether I want to recognize it now or in the future, like that's, I think, how collections are really made. And for me, it was like, hey, I'm going to take all of this money. I'm going to uh, take all the house money that I have and I'm going to trade it into newer, higher priced items. And then I'm going to do it again and I'm going to do it again. And I'm going to do it again. And I'm going to look for the top cards of the hobby that I want to collect and I have no intention of selling them for the next 10 years. We can revisit it, you know, maybe then, but it, it like not having to be stressed about, especially if you're doing this in your spare time, not having to be stressed about like, am I making enough money to be able to do this for fun? Not having to be stressed about, am I, um, is my time worth it? Like it is like, I enjoy doing this for fun. First and foremost, the time value calculation is obviously there. But if it's like, hey, I happen to just I'm, I mailed out thirty envelopes this week that made me twelve dollars. It wasn't worth my time, but it's all going towards the business, and I've already done enough. I don't mind doing this one thing. And and I guess the point that I'm getting at is when you know what you're doing, and you do how, and you start to get more and more successes, and you get to that house money point of being like, hey, this is the hobby is actually free. You start to realize that a lot of this is pattern recognition. And while it is difficult, it's not hard. That makes sense. It's not complicated. It's not easy, but I don't think it's complicated. It's relatively straightforward. You're buying something that you believe is going to be more valuable in the future. There's no, we're not doing rocket science. There's nuances to what the market is going to do and all of this stuff, but I don't think that investing as a whole is necessarily complicated. It's, it's difficult to stomach and it's difficult to, I think, remain, um, uh, to stick to your thesis, but I don't think it's, it's hard. I think it's not difficult for us. Fair enough. Okay. Um, <laughs> Maybe, I don't, I don't want to put it, position it like that though. I don't yeah, think it's I know, that difficult. It's not a humble thing to say, but it's, it's part of it is passion, but also it's a temperament. It's an intelligence and it's a, it's certain type of intelligence about 
trends. Like it's a certain type of intelligence and pattern recognition that some people seem to have and some people don't have as much. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I, so I do think that there's, there's a reason why some people are very good investors at whatever they invest at. And there's a reason why some people are not good investors at whatever they invest at. And now part of that is definitely that just like the emotional, the temperament issue. You know, there, there are people who just like always get it wrong there. And, and you should like use them as a barometer for like what not to buy, what not to do because they, you know, and it's harsh, but it's, it's just, they always get it wrong because they're always late. And they always jump on the trend at just the wrong time. And often these people tend to be very successful, <laughs> I, I find, in other things. They're just really bad investors. You know, so often they tend to be very successful with people, you know, very charismatic. You know, I've run into a number of these people. And it's shocking because they're really bright, brilliant people. And they have all sorts of great charisma and social skills and practical skills and all sorts of things. But there, you talk to them, and they, t- you know, you, at, you have an investment conversation, and you're just like, you, you walk away from them thinking like, oh my god, like they've got it completely backwards, completely wrong, you know, all these sorts of things, and yeah, it's it's interesting, and uh, so I, I I do, but I do think it's important to to to, to be take that seriously, and you know, do you have a knack for this? Do you have a talent for this? Um, to some degree, uh. Oh. And if not, you know, I think that there are ways to invest safely. First of all, getting a financial advisor is probably a good, a good plan. And then also there are ways to invest safely in, 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 in safe things. And, and, you know, if you want to invest in Pokemon safely, diversify in a number of different things, you know, uh, put in a thousand dollars a month, a hundred dollars a month in various things. Don't try and time things. Don't try to overthink it, you know, all that, that type of stuff. But um, uh, yeah, I would, I would just say, and this is probably not going to be the most appreciated statement, but I think talent and passion that's for amateurs, people who get lucky. This is my military upbringing. It's discipline because you need to learn. I think it's from experience. You might have, you, you can have a knack for anything, but it's what there's always going to be a point where you want to quit. And there's always going to be a point where, you know, if I went to draw, I could draw stick figures, but if I wanted to draw really well, I'm going to do it 600 times and then I'm going to learn to do it. Yeah. <laughs> I think that is a very key thing, which is why I would hesitate to, to, to kind of pin it on that. You do have to enjoy it, but at a certain point, whether you enjoy it, you don't, whether you want to do it, I think it all comes down to do it. <laughs> I mean, when I got into this, one of the reasons why I, like, I really get on well, I think with Zakil is just that. There, I think we, we started doing the same thing and we, we've spun up from there. But the first thing that I did when I got in, I was like, everybody that I know is successful. What do you do? What are you like? What are you doing? And something that kind of along to what you were saying, Jake, is um, or, and to tie it in with Sakil, playing with house money. I realized very quickly the people and I still to this day recognize people who entered into this sphere already playing with house money and they have no idea what risk is. <laughs> they have no idea. And it's so easy for them. And I never want to listen to any of their advice because it doesn't apply to me. And that's something you have to write. And it doesn't mean they're doing anything wrong. They have this ability to play it fast and loose that you might not. And you need to be able to identify that and understand, okay, there are still some things you can take out of that and apply to yourself. But at the same time, it's got to be what works for you. And nobody can answer that but you. 
Yeah, sorry, tangent. No, 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 it's great. I'm glad you push back. So on a couple of things, you know, I think I think how playing with house money can make you a better investor or a worse investor, depending on, you know, because it, it can make you be a little bit more bold, take bigger risks with bigger upside. It could also make, you know, it could also make you, you know, not care as much and be a little bit lazier and more random and, and be like, well, I probably lose on this, but it's fun and I'll just do it, you know, which is completely a fine way to live, but isn't investing, right? It's not, it's not smart investing. I think your point about, is it hard work? Is it, is it, na- is it a, a natural skill or all those sorts of things? Um, I, yeah, I don't know. Um, I, th- I do, I do think though, from people, they just like, Good investors, and when I when I think of good investors, I think of people like uh, Munger, Warren Buffett, these types of people and personalities. Those are the people that I think are good investors. There is a certain temperament and a certain type of intelligence on reading trends, on reading markets that I think is innate, and a certain knack for numbers and mem- and a memory for those patterns. So, for example, like mm-hmm. like. I could quote you like all the pop report numbers that I looked at today. And I have a sense like in me in where all the numbers are and what they are. And I can carry that around with me and like make decisions off of that, off of, off of the numbers. And I think that that is a certain shining Gyarados, a certain talent or knack shining Gyarados specifically. So I don't, I don't watch the Neo rev cards, but you want, want me to take a guess on that card? Yep. So, so the shinings are quite a bit higher. Um, the Magikarp I wanted to say was hovering. Yeah, it could be a decent range. I can give you the rest of that set. Um, sure. Shining cards. I'm gonna say I'm gonna guess there's a hundred and twenty PSA ten shining Gyaradoses, something like that. And I think that there are slightly more Gyaradoses than Magikarps, or they used to be. But like the, the the dogs are in the 20s, like 26, 24, 25. You have, um, yeah. Sorry, two seconds. We're checking. I haven't looked at that card in years, <laughs> that specific card. Um, but I can tell you the rough amount of total cards graded in that set, which is what I was looking at. And I can tell you the amount that have been graded this past week of, of total cards of PSA nines and tens and all that sort of so stuff. So you're right. Shining Gyarados pop, a PSA 10 pop is 103 yeah. and Magikarp is 111. Okay. So. so I wasn't too far off. Although now Magikarp has a little bit higher, but I haven't looked truthfully to the eyes. I haven't looked at that in, in years because I haven't been buying those cards. Um, but, um, but yeah, but, but for me, no, 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 it's it's completely all right. You can definitely test me. Um, but for example, with those sets, like, like the total graded, I can, I can tell you that. So Neo Genesis has the most at about 20,000 total graded. And this is just off the top of my head, about 20,000 cards in that set have been graded. Then Neo, um, discovery is by far the least at about 8,000 only roughly, um, somewhere in the 8,000 total graded. And then you have Neo Rev and Neo Destiny about the same. And, and Neo Destiny is slightly higher. Um, and uh, 
Yeah, and then Jungle Fossil you have around, and Team Rocket you have around 50,000 of each graded. First edition um, base set you have 100,000 graded. Unlimited you have about 100,000 graded. Shadowless you have about 50. Just to show you, the, the Diamond and Pearl era you have in the thousands only for each set. So there's a lot of data um, that gives me a sense of, yeah, just like how much is how much is graded offhand. But um, the point just being that I do think that there's a certain knack Whereas like people's names, I have no idea what people's names are. And and we could say part of it's a discipline or part of it's a caring, but it's also just like how my brain is wired. You know what I mean, Chris? Like, so I don't know. It's an interesting discussion. Mm-hmm. We could we could certainly yeah. go go off on a tangent. I do think the discipline, um I don't feel like I'm that disciplined. I feel like it's a passion and it comes natural and I love it and I do it. Um so for me, it's almost like how my brain is wired is like, and I loved being a poker player, which I view as, po- I think good poker players are good investors. I think they're very similar types of people. Um, and like each hand is an investment. And I think that it's, 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 and I think Warren Buffett, they would have answered the exact same thing. It's like, it's just who they are. It's like, it's, they're not going to work every day. It's, it's a, it's a, um, it's a, just like, it's how they're wired. It's like how they're built. Um, but I think people who maybe aren't built that way, who still want to be a good investor and make money in those sorts of things that it might, it might look a little bit differently. They might have to discipline themselves in certain ways. Like you might have to force yourself, someone might have to force themselves to like, look at the data, you know, sit down, do that, you know, do the rigor, maybe have flashcards to get to, to be able to like memorize it or have a sense of it, that sort of thing. Um, but Yeah. I don't know. What do you think, Sakil, about all that for you? You think it's natural? Do you think you have discipline? Or both. Sorry, I'm muted. Um, I think it's a little of both. So it's ironic that you said that because Lee Lu, who is Charlie Munger's, like, who's like the new age Charlie Munger, uh, Charlie Munger very rarely lets people manage his money. And Lee Lu is the only person in the world that he has given money to. Same thing. Buffett hasn't, but Buffett specifically calls out Seth Klarman. And every single one of these people uh, say that value investing and investing as a whole is not something that you can learn. You're just born doing it. I probably agree. I don't think I know enough to make that exact statement. (laughs) Um, but I also think it, it's, it's one of those things where it's like someone can be a natural athlete, but getting the most of your potential is still going to require training and discipline and actually caring. I think anything in life is often like that. Sure. Um, but yeah, that's what I would say. I mean, I, first first and foremost i don't want to paint myself as like this prodigy or anything like that i'm I'm just some guy uh in in a random three by three closet recording a podcast but um to interrupt you for one second to i I think that you don't know until you've proven it by actually making the money or actually really looking at what they're doing and to getting a sense of how smart are they really? Why are they doing what they're doing? How much work do they put in and comparing yourself? You know, I think people often do a thing of like, they either, they kind of put themselves down without like any real evidence 
you know, or people have like huge ego without any real evidence of like, you haven't really, you haven't done anything or accomplished anything to assume you could do what someone who's done all of that is, is definitely a leap. Um, so, you know, you're 26 years old, <laughs> you know, you, you've got, you've got time to see sure. where, where you go with this and, and you'll challenge yourself and see how, you know, good of an investor you are, or, and, and I'm not sure Warren Buffett or Charlie Munger would, would have ever considered themselves prodigies at anything, you know, because I'm not sure this is the type of thing. It's not like we have minds. We're not beautiful minds here where, you know, we were, we can say a hundred thousand numbers of pi, or, you know, there isn't anything that's so standout-ish almost. Um, and I know tr- the same thing for Warren Buffett. There isn't anything that's like so standout-ish about his brain or his ability. Really smart guy, definitely very high IQ, good good memory for numbers, but nothing savant-like, you know? And, and I do think that's interesting when we think about like people who are the most successful investors, you know, is it luck, you know, is, is also, does luck play a, a, a huge percentage in which smart guy who's very skilled at investing becomes Warren Buffett versus like the hundreds of other just like millionaires, you know, or, or whatever. Um, but I'm sorry, I interrupted you. But I, I, I think about that stuff because I do think it's, I think it's interesting. And I, I would get the sense, unless it's an act, and I don't think it is, that I don't think that Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger think that they're superhuman people, you know, unless that, that sort of humility is an act. I, I just don't get that sense from them, but maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I I tend to agree. I, the only thing that I know right now is how I want to invest in the things that I'm attracted to and the things that my personality is attracted to is much more about the straightforward, boring, like we can talk about value investing, but like things that I don't get excited about hype. I don't get excited about emotion very much. Um, So I, I'm not like a massive crypto person. I'm not like a massive, uh, like wearing, I don't know, crazy clothes. I, I don't know how to, to say this, but the point that I was getting at is to become great at something, you just have to do it a lot. And if you're people who really care, people who are good at what they do really care about it and they uh, keep going despite facing challenges. And I think that like, it goes back to the saying, I think that uh, Chris was getting at is like the master has attempted more times than the student has ever, or pardon me, the master has failed more times than the student has ever tried. And I just think you take that mantra for anything you ever want to do in life and Hey, boom, that's how you become successful. I don't think there's crazy. And obviously apart from like freak of nature things, I I don't think it's that complicated, but yeah. Maybe. (laughs) I enjoyed that little. I have such like such a douchey thing to say, you know, say it. What what do you say? Oh God. Like, I don't know, man. It's like, it's, it, it's, it feels good to say things like that, but is it really true that like everyone can do this or that most people could do it with hard work or that, you know, or most people can do things with hard work. It's like, it's one of those things that, that it's just like, yeah, it's like, I hope that's true. Like gen, you know, genuinely. And I, listen, I'm a, I'm a therapist, I'm a social worker. So I, I hope that everyone is capable of anything. I mean, part of my job is, is 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 hoping that every individual is capable of anything and capable of change with with 
hard work or try or better understanding yourself or self-awareness and that people can improve their skills and all those sorts of things. And I, there's some evidence to show that that's true. There's, there's also a lot of evidence to, to show that people don't change or struggle to change and people's personalities and temperaments and all sorts of things are pretty, are fairly unchanging across, across the life, the, you know, so the lifespan. So in some ways it's, I think for some people it's better advice just be like, you're not an investor. Like you don't have the temperament and the, and the interest and, and the perspective. And there are people who do that. You could go do this, you know, you'd probably be happier and, and you'd, you'd have, your time would be more well spent doing this thing over here and hiring someone to, you know, to, to do that. But, but, um, that's, that's to, to tell you the kind of nerd that I am. I want to have a, I want to have a whole discussion topic on free will now, because if anybody else didn't pick up on that, maybe I'm just a mega nerd, but that's what I picked up on in that. That's, that's what I pulled out of that is that Jake and I will disagree. <laughs> Sorry. Well, let's yeah. hear it. What are you talking about? Are you hyping this up? Let's hear it. What, what's your, what do you well, I think yeah, you always you, have a choice. You always have the choice to try again or give up. And people mm-hmm. in, in in this context, I mean, you always have that choice. And it's not saying that you can't choose the give up option so long as you recognize that you did have that option and you chose it. So that's fine. So clearly when we talk about free will, we don't have free will to do anything, right? We can all agree on that. I can't go outside and fly. I can't <laughs> like face through a wall. Right. I don't, hard enough. Sure. <laughs> I don't have the choice or the free will to do that. Do I have the choice or the free will to say a hundred thousand numbers of pi right now? No, I don't. I don't just because I don't have the choice to do that. So that's where it's, it's sort of like, that's where I'm coming from. Not a sort of like anti free will argument, but just to, to be a little comical, but to, to just show you my perspective, I'm coming from more of that place of like, Choice in life is limited and free will is limited based on also one's genetics ability, you know, and we can get into a determination argument, you know, predetermination. I'm not really interested in, in pre, you know, whether things are predetermined or not, but more from a common sense perspective of like, clearly there are things you can do, there are things you can't do. And then there are things that are probably gray. Maybe I can do them. You know, let's see. You know, if I do, if I try, maybe I can do it. Maybe I can't, um, and, you know, and there, there are a lot of things in life that I think are probably in that realm. Um, so. Yeah. I'm, I'm just of the, the, I don't know, opinion, I guess would probably be the correct way or viewpoint that most mental, most mental acuity past things. And obviously there are prodigies. There are exceptions to this. I think most of those, I, and I would say like 90 for, for, I can't put a number on this, but I will just for the sake of argument, I would say like 95% of people can, can learn mental ability, something that's physical. That's like a skill. Like I can see like an innate ability to do that. And I can see an innate aptitude for certain mental activities. But I do think if it's something you're passionate about, you can, you, I don't want to say force yourself, but I think that is kind of the right term in terms of I'm going to sit down and I'm going to do it. I'm going to sit down and I'm going to do it. I'm going to sit down and I'm going to do it. And yeah, it might take you longer and you might never reach the level of somebody else who might have that innate advantage, but you can still do it. And through that discipline, you're going to beat a whole lot of other people who might just have that potential, that innate ability or everybody else. Like, I don't know. You'll never, you'll, you might never be the best, but that doesn't matter so long as you can be in the room. So generally speaking, I think that there are more, 
progressive liberal creative types and more industrious play by the rules, rigid conservative types. I actually think that people who are more rigid in their thinking tend not to be great investors. Um, I, I think you need that creative type, but if you can also be industrious and combine those things, that's, that's the best possible. I do think though, that there's, you're not going to be able to spot trends with just work and effort. It's, there's a create, there's a creative sort of thinking and there's some sort of thought process happening that some people seem to have, some people don't. I'm not sure how much that, that specific skill can be learned. Um, but that's one type of investing. There's a lot of other types of potential mm-hmm. investing. And, you know, I don't know the answer to that, right? I mean, maybe maybe it can be. Um, but, um, the, yeah. The style of investing that you just, like, pulled together for me, I would just explain it differently. I think it's experience mm-hmm. in terms of you got, and I won't say 100%, but I do think there's always an element of you got luck on your side earlier on wherein you were, you now gained experience for recognizing the proper patterns and trends. And because you survived that experience and you didn't lose all your money, you are now in a position where you can spot it where others can't because you've, you basically got out, whether by the skin of your teeth, whether you, you know, it was pure skill, luck, whatever it was, but you've survived to a point where others who might've had that ability didn't get the same roll of the dice at one certain point. And so now that you're here, you're going to look around and say, I'm the only one here who can do this because you're the only one who was able to get it right every time. And mm-hmm. I personally think nobody on nobody on the planet, no human gets it right every time through pure skill. That's just not how it works. So I do think there is that level of attrition. But I also understand once you get to the top and you're the only one standing there and you look around and say, nobody else thinks like me. Well, because everybody got up there their own way. So I don't know. I, I really just, I don't buy the innate argument. I, I would want to put so many more restrictions on it uh, at the very least. Well, I think it's, I think it's a good conversation and I think we're both making good points. Yeah. Um, uh, and it's, it's an interesting topic and it's obviously um, not, I, you know, it's a topic that I think is important <laughs> for, for people out there to maybe have some sense of where they, where they lie on that. Because I do think that it's it's pretty integral to <laughs> how they go about maybe choosing what to spend their time with. I, I, I do also think that when we analyze and dig down on passion, because I know you mentioned like like having passion or drive for things, like often people are passionate about things they're very good at because part of why they're passionate is they're constantly feeling succeeding and that feels very good. Mm-hmm. They like doing that thing a lot because they're constantly getting positive feedback. So a lot of times people start very talented or gifted at something and then they develop a passion for that thing because what really is happening is they're getting a lot of positive feedback from everyone in their life that they're doing great. Now, I do think there can be a type of passion that can be derived from almost struggle, which maybe you're talking a little bit about, Chris, or like a military can kind of train, or it's a little bit more of a conservative industrious sort of idea of like the passion is the struggle and not giving up. It's like I'm very passionate about my values and and being and having character and integrity and never giving up even when things are difficult. And I think that 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 is can also clearly be like a very valuable driver. But I do think like when we talk about a lot of your most successful CEOs, successful entrepreneurs, these sorts of things, 
a lot of it is 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 actually more of what I think of the type of passion that I think is driven more by, um, or maybe it's the easiest way, just by you. You have a gift. You're 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 good at this, and and you get a lot of positive feedback. You know, and then to to go to Zakiel's point, and and maybe you should should chime in soon, Zakiel, with with any opinion you want to share. But to Zakiel Zakiel's point earlier, that um, that then feeds on itself because you know, and really to your point too, Chris. But th- then you're getting a lot of reps, right? You're doing it a lot. You're you're getting a lot of positive feedback. You're doing well. People are telling you you're great, and then you're practicing and also getting getting better at it over time potentially. Um, but the whole nature versus nurture argument, I think that it's it's um, there are plenty of good points to be made on both sides. For me, it's more of a specific situation of whether I would say this specific thing feel seems more nature, seems more nurture, and you'd kind of have to like unpack each individual thing. Um, that's how I tend to like those conversations because a, a whole na- a nature versus nurture debate or argument isn't doesn't move anywhere from my from my experience in my life <laughs> um, having that when I when I was younger in my philosophy courses um, but it can move somewhere when you when and, and why I became a psychologist and not a philosopher it can move somewhere when you talk about you as a person and when you self-analyze and you look at why do you do the things you do you can start to unpack some of that nature versus nurture in yourself and that is actually very that's actually experientially very helpful. Um, versus versus having it on a more philosophical front of like trying to have one unifying theory of nature versus nurture for every individual, that that sort of thing. And I, I think some people could be more nature, some people could be more nurture. At various times in your life, it, it could be both of those things. Um, yeah, that's my perspective. So I'm 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 kind of I, neutral. Oh, I love it. You know. <laughs> um. And, and a little bit about me, you know, that is why I became a, a therapist because I didn't feel like having that conversation in, in classrooms at, or being a teacher of that felt, didn't feel practical enough or didn't feel like real world enough. Whereas I liked the idea of taking those ideas and trying to apply into like specific people's lives. And, I, and by the way, I, I do think all of that and all my interest in that also informs my investing, which is how it would be related to this channel. And I, I do think that interest in why people do what they do because that's what we're trying to predict we're trying to predict people's behaviors we're trying to predict people's buying and, and selling behaviors when, when we're trying to when we're, when we're predicting market movements absolutely um i can't follow that up i'm not that good so i don't know <laughs> um how are you both feeling we we did have a main topic today but we may not <laughs> We, we, we don't want to commit to doing the entire thing. We can do a, a subtopic if that's easier. What do you are, feel? Are we through the questions, Akil, or do we have more? No, that is the last question, and we do have our topic after that. It's up to you I, guys. I'm down. Yeah, I'm down. Go for it. I was tired, and I thought I was going to need to bail early. Now I'm into it. You brought up philosophy. I'm in. I'm in it to win it now. Nice, nice. Do you have any closing remarks, Chris, before we move on to our next topic? Yeah. No, I, I, I honestly, I loved how Jake closed that out. Um, Fun fact, everyone in my family growing up thought I was going to be a philosopher. So, you know, that's just me. So I, that stuff is just, uh, it's always fun to talk about, but you're absolutely right. Philosophers get nothing done. Uh, So (laughs) taking those concepts and pointing it at places where it can actually make an impact. That's yeah, probably one of the greatest truths we've said on here. I don't know. 
but yeah. <laughs> That's the utilitarian in me. I want results. I want to see my thoughts play out in the real world and not just in the the abstracts of my mind. Not just another um, sixty pages at the back of the at the back of the book, hoping somebody writes a retort for it in theirs. Yeah, I, I when I was um, I was a philosophy psychology um, uh, major in both, and when I was doing the philosophy, and it was like, okay, which response is this? Is this a response to the response to the response to the response? You know, like that's what being a philosophy student is. If if anyone out there has been one, you're reading like first you read the article, then you read a response to that article, then you read a response to the response, and then you read a response to the response to the response. And by the time you're at the fourth response, it's like you're not talking about like the 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 central thesis or point. You're trying to like break down the language. You're you're in some sort of like semantic debate about like you know, what is will and, and what is doubt? And like, what do we, you know, and, and, and you're like, you're way in the weeds over there. And you're like, yeah. and the way that I used to talk about it with my friends, is like, it's sort of like intellectual masturbation. It's like, basically, we're just proving how smart we are <laughs> yeah, it is. for the purposes of experiencing our own intelligence. Like, that's what it used. it's like, we're sitting here experiencing in real time, our own intelligence and getting high off of it. And our own intelligence is the ability to like break down <laughs> words and, and understand things. And it's like, listen, I'm all for that. I, I think enjoying your own, you know, your own intelligence is part of knowledge. And I think it's why people like learning part of it. But I do think the other, and, and I think there's nothing wrong with that, all jokes aside, I think that 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 thirst or hunger for knowledge is crucial for not only us as individuals and the fact that we enjoy that and get pleasure, but for humanity, it, 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 it pushes us to kind of be, to develop our, our frontal cortexes and be able, be able to, to, to think so critically. It's a great thing for, for us and for others, um, but, um, but also figuring out how, how you can apply, you know, where the, where the apps, not only, you're not only becoming a good thinker, which I think is valuable, but the things you're actually thinking about how can have some sort of value and, and, and shape the external world outside of your, your abstract mind, your abstract thinking, I think is, yeah. I, I love you. <laughs> you, uh, you talk about the whiteboard breaking it down. I remember distinctly in college having to go to a whiteboard during a professor's office hours and start drawing lines of this philosopher defined this term himself, contrary to everybody else. So with that understanding, we need to break it down here, here, here. And to that same point, though, I also remember when I was learning how to play Magic the Gathering with Hivemind on the table going, okay, I've got Hivemind, you've got Hivemind, I packed negation this, you packed negation this, and doing the exact same thing. So there is a crossover to TCGs. We did it. <laughs> it's all TCGs. That's, what that's, that's where it all comes back to you. Awesome. All right, so Keel, I'm going to get you a philosophy book. <laughs> I Yeah, the, the irony is I was actually listening to... Um, I read The Prince yes the other day, which is not the Machiavelli? best. Machiavelli. Yeah, not the best uh, uh, book. I don't know. Oh, oh, that man. There's a lot of there's a lot of kind of wild stuff in there, but I was familiarizing myself a little bit. But there you go. For next time. For next time. There you go. So the main topic this week, <laughs> an hour and a half into the show. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this is our show. We do what we want. 
is how do you source cards sourcing inventory sourcing collection sourcing the heart and soul of what we do um i actually want chris to start this conversation off because this i think the thing that you definitively do the best in my opinion you optimize it you put in a lot of time and energy and have built a community and and just really know uh your ins and outs of kind of this thing so i'll present the question to you how do you source cards so that first of all that that introduction was marvelously beautiful i told zakil i had to show my own stuff and he gives me that segue that you can't ask for a better one than that uh, but yeah, no, definitely over. So, uh, really, what Jerry Seinfeld says about getting a really strong introduction is when when someone tells that you're the best at something, everyone in the audience goes, "Oh, really? Let's see how smart <laughs> you are. <laughs> Let's see how good this is." Ah, <laughs> uh, well, that's what I, we're all going to sit back and say. Oh, all right, Chris. Let's see. Prove it. Prove that Zikil's right. I actually have confidence here, so don't worry. Yeah, as do <laughs> but, I. As do I. I'm just um, what what Ban has done, which Ban community is what is the is what we call ourselves, because everybody involved in it got banned from one form or the other from whatever community, because we wanted to give free stuff to people, but it was cutting in on the host profits, whatever organization that was. Wow. So in order to be part of the group originally, you just had to be banned from something, and doors were <laughs> open to you. Because and then we'd share everything with each other, and it seems to be working out fairly successfully. Uh, but what we what we've done is, especially is scraping a lot of websites for what their inventory is. Because believe it or not, if you're new or maybe even if you're experienced, a lot of the main vendors, it, and especially too, uh, storefronts on eBay count, um, they don't look at each other. Nobody looks at each other, so nobody knows if they're selling a card below buy list. It's actually kind of comical. I may I was making I was making like four or five thousand dollars a year at the beginning of last year. Every month, just literally drop shipping, buying from one vendor and selling it to another for profit. I never touched the cards. I never saw them. I made it an automated process and just trusted it with my money, and it worked. So I was like, this this is a system that works. And I was doing that between three places. Um, and then I bumped into Dakota, who we've had on as, a, as an interview, and he's a much more adept programmer. And now we, we're up to, I think, like 23 vendors. We're scraping all of their inventory because part of the struggle is, is clicking through and having to know where to go, who has what, how much of what, what are they selling at, you know, and, and trying to create the cross scenes. Because uh, you guys have both mentioned prior in this, I bought one collection. In my entire life it was a pokemon collection last september and i think i sent zakil like 300 messages because like i have no idea what i'm doing um and it i mean it went well for me i definitely made my money back and the stuff that i sent off to be graded uh on it's it's gonna be wonderful but i never i'm not exactly what you would call a people person <laughs> so everything in my entire skill set is sourcing inventory from websites online and people think the vendors can't be beat but I think as soon as you understand the inner workings of these vendors, they're very easy to, to beat, at least from an e-commerce perspective. Um, so for me, in my particular instance, how I source cards is exactly that. I'll see what they're selling um, and I'll see you know, what somebody else is buying it for. I'm also not above because forecasting and time series analysis, very data science terms, I apologize. Basically predicting what a card will go into the future is my personal favorite project to work on applying deep machine learning, doesn't matter. And seeing how a card will move into the future and identifying opportunities 
way better than the current vendors can do. Uh, I did try for a time as well to create my own buy list, creating like gradations, like, and then I realized it was kind of like philosophy. It was just a, a mental circle jerk. And that I realized all I have to do is beat the best offer by a dollar. <laughs> and I have infinite supply that you will, so long as they know I'm here, I have a list, I have a pool of money, they will come to me. And that's honestly how I source my cards, whether through going to these vendors, through searching with an automatic, automatic compare system to see, okay, they're underpricing it, I can make money here, or taking advantage of um, basically my forecasting. Something else that TCG player has recently enacted is churn rate. You can abuse the absolute crap out of that. I now know exactly what to put my money in that might be static to now level up credit because I know it'll sell quickly and I know it's underpriced or I know it's overpriced here and underpriced there. So that is my entire methodology uh, in terms of sourcing my cards. It's either programmatically locating opportunities or um, through just betting into my own technical expertise, although I wouldn't call it that, but my own, my own projects and creations and then seeing how it plays out into the future and then modifying what I've got, which is, I think, a much more tech-based approach than anybody else in the industry has in any of the TCG or CCG industries. Um, but it does make it wonderful because like, I enjoy sitting down and coding for six hours. I hate going to source. I hate having to have 12 tabs opened up, looking at price history on one. You know, There's three cards here. I've got to find them. I've got to locate it. Maybe they're out of stock, so I've got to check the other 12 storefront. That to me feels like an egregious waste of my time. Uh, so I would, whenever I see something like that, my, my mind just always goes to automation, have something do it for me. And I'll put the time in to build that and then I'll stack that on the next thing and go forward from there. So it's also why, you know, when you get, it's also why when we start talking about like collection buying, you know, buying on eBay, I try and like kind of pull back from the conversation and let Jake and Zakiel because they're, style of doing things, which I do think is a lot more traditional to the TCG, CCG industry, I have far less experience in doing. But yeah. So just as an example, because I, I obviously know what you do, um, uh, your work for something like TCG Player, right? you have a, a running tally, running code that scrapes TCG Player every so many hours and says, hey, these specific cards have sold. Like these are the best-selling cards of TCG Player today. These are the best-selling cards of TCG Player this week, this month, this three-month period. And then you will then say, okay, uh, if if this specific card is becoming really, really popular, it may be advantageous to me to go and source it somewhere else to then sell online. Or this card is becoming popular, everyone wants it. Where can I look among the 50 other websites that are selling cards that may be on the second or third page of Google, or maybe a small time seller that you may not have the best SEO to then buy from them and make money? Correct. And then the other really big thing is if you're not familiar with this, you should immediately become familiar in the TCG arbitrage. Go look at Europe, go look at Tokyo, Japan, look at Australia for Pete's sake. Look everywhere because all. I kind of live by the, the metaphor that all roads lead to Rome. And in this case, in general, this is not always the case, but in general, North America is the highest spending for what they want. So if you just go to a different region, like it's, it's funny right now, cause it's the inverse of what I'm used to. You, the, the profitable move with Pokemon right now is buy it in North America and sell it in Europe, which is backwards from what I'm used to. But the, the EU market actually for just raw and, and sealed Pokemon 
they're voracious. And if you think it's bad in the U.S., my goodness, ship it overseas. Watch your bank account. But yeah. Yeah, there's so much like stories I've heard of also like streamers opening booster boxes and selling them for like double and people and like people like, like ferociously buying the packs, like everything. So yeah, that's in line with everything I hear <laughs> about what's happening over there. But yeah, so I guess my, my entire methodology to, to boil it down, because I think this is very important, is I like to create an offer list and let people come to me, which means I have to be very confident in what I put in my offer list because I'm essentially creating my own buy list, which is why I'm also very hesitant to go, wade into new markets because at the end of the day, what I do is I trust a robot with my money, which is very risky, which is why I always cap how much I give it in case it breaks. Um, so, $500 lost here or there adds up. <laughs> so you start putting in fail safes, but yeah, that, that is my kind of approach is to try and create as tempting an offer as I can for specific. And I've had people where I reach out and I'll say, Hey, I see that you've got 40 of this. Can I buy it? And they say, Oh, you're interested. No, I won't sell it. And then they take it off the market and they'll sit on it for three months and relist it. And it's like, God damn. Uh, but yeah. How, how many other people do you think are doing what you're doing, Chris? Um, three and they're all directly involved with me <laughs> so you don't think anyone else is doing it not not to the capacity that we're doing it yet and uh definitely none of the major vendors are doing it because it would cost money like to hire somebody with the skill sets of the guys that we have doing it for funsies they they can't they are i don't know if they can't they're not willing to so yeah mm. Yeah. And it's funny because when I originally found Chris online, he was on someone else's podcast who was interviewing him about the same thing. We're like, hey, how do you, how have you do this? He was posting graphs on Twitter. Um, I think we had followed each other or something and, and just kind of like, I enjoyed what he was posting. And I was like, uh, dude, like, how are you doing this? What is it? Because at the time I was, I was working in data um, in my previous job and was doing similar things, not anywhere near the technical ML stuff, but just in, tar in terms of data visualization and, and database stuff, I was like, yeah, this is, like, I completely understand this. And he's like, yeah, you should join the Discord. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> and you could, you know, you join this community of people who are just doing crazy stuff. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's funny. This is something that Chris and I have been talking about on Collect and Spec for the past year, now going on year and a half. Uh, and it's just absolutely insane to me where I don't have the technical capabilities that he does, nor is it my strong suit, but just taking 10, 20% of the, the things that you learn from, from this community and saying, Hey, arbitrage is something you should just actively look into, right? It's between stores, between regions, like there's some, uh, high level tools and not to like shill completely, but like there's some high level, just basic scripts that you can run that will give you a lot of power and not have to like just manually go through, you know, each individual website searching for cards. Um, Posted a lot of things for free in dev room for anybody to use. Yeah. So, um, yeah, let's, uh, I, I guess that with that, what is the, to kind of wrap up that introduction, what is the, maybe the best buy you've ever had, you know, with your skill set? What's like the one thing that you, you look back on and you're like, Man, I'm I'm really I would have not have got this opportunity if it wasn't for the things that I do. 
I, I honestly think that's flesh and blood. <laughs> Watching what was selling at the speed it was selling and at the price it was. Because, and we've had this talk before, and like, especially off cast, it's like, we, I don't even see how we're arguing because in theory, like by the fun, like the principles by which we both invest in, we agree. All I see is there is an irrational market and they are spending money. <laughs> and if they're going to spend money, I'm going to buy in. And I think I probably made like 15, 20,000 just off flesh and blood, just dipping in and then bouncing. And for me, that's, Hey, I'm there all day for that. Yeah, I'm ready great. to do that again. So, yeah. yeah, that's great. Awesome. Uh, Jake, how do you source cards? You've been in the hobby um, for a long time. And I think, uh, you know, you've talked, you've shared many videos on your YouTube channel and about how you have approached and kind of what your history is within the hobby. What is your high level uh, method or uh, strategy to buying cards? Yeah, I mean, I'm like the, I'm an old non-tech, you know, <laughs> I, I think that, so I tend to focus on, I have a, I have cards that I think are undervalued generally or areas of the market that I feel are undervalued. And then I search everywhere for those is how I do it. Um, so yeah, I'm looking on different auction sites, Golden, Heritage, um ebay of course um looking on facebook i'm looking on instagram those are probably my major ones looking on yahoo japan um looking a little bit on on certain discords and uh i also me having a channel like it people come to me and uh, sometimes with deals with things that i that i buy from them um, I also have just friends and relationships and I put out to my friends that I'm looking for something or, you know, keep an eye out, let me know. They reach out to me, tell me the same thing. We kind of mutually help each other look out for things, that sort of thing. That's really it, you know, and, and um, I like to, t I tend to like to watch the highest of the high, higher level stuff and look out for that mostly because um, I, I tend to make big purchases and, and hopefully get big returns rather than doing lots of small, small things. Um, so I'm very happy buying like a 50,000, like my ideal thing is to buy like a hundred thousand dollar collection or $50,000 collection. That's what, that's my ideal, you know, someone who doesn't want it anymore, didn't grade it, didn't really have that much knowledge, was a passionate, you know, collector, is just looking to get out, wants to sell it to someone who's going to give them a fairly reasonable amount. I'll, I'll pay them 50 to 60%, you know, maybe 70%, depending what's in it, of the raw card value. And then I'm going to make a huge additional amount once I, once I grade them and I figure out exactly what to grade, what to sell raw, and I break that apart. That's my ideal. My ideal thing is just finding that one, that one big thing. So, I like to have the cash available either directly or the ability to, to sell some stocks or to put it, to put it briefly on a credit card till I can pay it off um, to just kind of be ready for those types of deals. So that's, that's what I, what I'm, what I'm looking for. Um, outside of that, I do buy single cards for sure. Uh, both um, sometimes ungraded more so graded usually, or a few different graded cards, sometimes sealed. Um, and, uh, yeah. Um, uh, and then like at night, I like just going on eBay and just hanging out, you know, it's, it's a way that I kind of cool, cool down at night and relax 
And so I'm often on there just looking at to see what, what people are bidding on. I, sometimes I'll just put in like, you know, number of bids highest auction and I'll see what people are, you know, what are the most bid on items right now? What are the hottest items? What are people really looking at? Um, so, sometimes I'll just look up the highest auction, you know, occasionally that way I'll filter in or filter out or see something that's, that's, um, just a really huge auction that people, people often aren't really good at figuring out a value of really large collections. And so I can use my just knowledge of the price history and, and all the different cards to, to quickly kind of factor what I think I should pay for it. Often people are too anxious or nervous to do that. They'd rather just buy one card at a time where they can easily check the, the price history of that card. That's the type of stuff I try and take advantage of um, and have so successfully over the, over the last like four years. And what is your best buy um, that you would not have had otherwise, uh, you know, far from your skill set, I guess, or from uh, your skill set? Yeah, I turned three thousand into three hundred thousand on one buy. That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, that was my best one. I've had I've had two really good buys, and without those two buys, I, I I'd be you know considerably less than I am now, you know, because those, those buys also really helped me catapult to the bigger bit and bigger buys and just take advantage of everything. So, um, it was huge. Yeah. And it was just an auction on eBay and I was at work and I could have missed it. Wow. <laughs> so, that's just one of those things. Yeah. So that there was that, um, that auction, it was a bunch of Japanese, it was all Japanese. It was all Japanese. Um, like 25 or so gold stars, um, multiple complete play promo sets. All came back tens, basically. Everything came back tens. All the gold stars came back tens. All the play promos came back tens. You know, I think I I think I got like five nines. I mean it was just wow. absurd. These cards were gorgeous. And the in, in the description it said that they were in good condition, but it didn't even say that they were like gem mint or perfect. So I had no idea, um, lucked into it basically. Now I was able to factor how much it was worth. And so I put, I put a bid that was very high. I was going to win that auction. Um, uh, I think I put in a $6,000 bid and I ended up winning it for 3000. So I was going to make sure I was going to win that auction. Um, but even at the time that was worth $30,000, like before, before any of those cards blew up, it was still a $30,000 auction. I mean, it, it had the gold start dogs. Um, the, excuse me, the, um, the, the play promo, um, it had the play promo Jolteon, Flareon, came back tens. Those cards in and of themselves are, are, you know, even at that time were $2,000 cards in PSA tens. Um, so I, for two cards and, and then it came with a hundred graded cards that were already graded. So a hundred graded, there were 30 shining legends, all tens, you know, um, what else was there? Oh, there's, I have the most complete set of, so Diamond and Pearl has these, um, the reverse hollow in English, it's reverse hollow shiny cards. Not sure if you're familiar with them. Uh, hmm. uh, and I got in this, they, they came in J Japanese. And so I have the only set in the world, the only completed set of those. Um, those cards, I, I wouldn't sell those cards. Those cards are easily 500 to a thousand dollars each now um in psa 10 and there were about 20 of those you know i multiple test tube mewtwo psa 10s there were 
their ten. I had there was a Mewtwo, a no rarity Mewtwo that came back a nine. You know, there's just endless things from that collection, and and then there were a hundred or so raw, um, um, just regular EX era uh, original Nintendo EX era hollows in Japanese. I graded all of those; they all came back tens. I could probably sell each of those for a couple hundred bucks, you know, in, in today's market. Um, some of them maybe more. So it's it's an insane lot. Um, I bought that lot, and then I bought an English completely ungraded lot mostly first edition. Um, I graded those a lot of that came back like nines and tens. It was, I bought it for a thousand dollars and it was like unreal. And I think it had 200 or so first edition commons on commons. Most of those came back tens, a lot of nines, you know, just huge hits. And, um, uh, um, I was on eBay three, four hours a day back then looking at auctions and and i was buying like four to five lots a day so i was i was buying tons and tons of things and those are probably the two that stand out the most and i still have ungraded cards from those lots today that i'm still sitting on um and um uh so it's trickier it's obviously it's it's much more tricky now and i and i saw I saw a lot of people overpaying for lots like that in, in this last year and, and not factoring in grading fees and, you know, all sorts of things. So, so be careful. You know, I think people hear stories like that and they're like, I'm going to go out there and, and find that lot in, in this environment. I think it's possible, but it's tricky. It's much trickier now. Like when I was doing that, there just was not much competition. And particularly for like some Japanese stuff and, um, you know, and, and, and a lot of guys, they don't buy auctions. Like the big guys, they don't, they don't have time, you know, or, or they say they don't have time. I don't know if it's that or that they just don't have, they don't want to do it. You know, they, I, for me, it's fun and it's still fun. I, I love bidding on auctions. It's a blast. You know, I think a lot of other people, it's more of just like, you know, I just want to buy it now. I just look at buy it nows. I, I just do best offers and I just buy private sales. And I still think auctions are, are going to be some of the, some of the best deals and some of the things you can find. So yeah, that's my, my, my ramble, my spiel. Amazing. Wow. <laughs> I need to buy more auctions or more lots. <laughs> yeah. But again, dude, I bought none this year. I, I bought yeah. one, right. I bought that first edition PSA. This is the only one I bought the whole year. Big auction, you know, with lots of cards. Out in Pokemon, I bought lots of other auctions in other in other TCGs, but it's the only one. And and I was looking this year, so it's uh, for those out there. It's not like there were things that that you know. I don't. I maybe someone got a deal like that this year, but but uh, that first edition lot I was able to get was did very well. But outside of that, that was the only thing I the only big lot I bought this year in Pokemon. Um, outside of that, I've just been buying trophy cards. That's it. Wow. And now I'm starting to buy set cards, but, but individual, I'm just buying PSA tens right now, you know, because I, I think that the tens are undervalued and the tens are not going up. Whereas like the nines and eights are going up. So that sort of thing. Crazy, man. That's insane. Yeah. Um, let me think what, what, oh man. Uh, I think I'm also just kind of like. I'm kind of in the middle, I think, of both of you. Um, so I've been doing this b- basically my entire adult life and any 
re- really my entire life I've been in, in TCGs um, and have kind of grinded from the, you know, the kid who was playing the budget deck at the LGS or at the LGS getting one pack a week, you know, with the allowance money all the way up to, you know, now being the person um, that at this point, probably half a dozen to upwards to a dozen LGSs will now send me an email or a text message saying, hey, this collection came in. Um, you know, it's not something that we're necessarily looking for uh, with regards to inventory or we can't afford it or this reason or that, uh, would you be interested in taking it? And that, you know, that's everything from $500 cars, just like one-off things here and there to, I've been offered a lot of very, really rare things that I didn't understand at the time in, in every single hobby in Pokemon back in the day in, in, in a bunch of games. <laughs> um, and I think that's also kind of just by virtue of where I live. Seattle is very much a, a tech city, but also heavy into like board game culture and like tabletop and coffee and like bar stuff. Uh, I think very similar to something like Boston. I think I'm assuming Massachusetts and Washington are probably fairly similar. Um, and have essentially leveraged that to kind of live my adult life. Like I think going back post high school, college, I was super into sneakers. I was super into cards and I just had a really good sense of what people wanted and what was going to do well in the market and would buy cards and wait a couple of weeks and sell them on eBay uh, or TCG player. Uh, same thing with sneakers. And then I use that to be able to pay for college. Like I would be like, all right, I need a, I need $7,000, you know, <laughs> by next month or next Wednesday or whatever, let's get it going. And uh, I would come in with the check, you know, whatever that, that next day. Um, I didn't pay off my last year of college because I realized the, uh, the value of my portfolio was drastically going to outpace the interest rate on my student loan for that year, <laughs> <laughs> which in hindsight was a fantastic move. My mom was not happy, but uh, that's a conversation for a different time. Um, but it, uh, I think, yeah, it's just been that compounding over and over and over again. And I mean, I really mean like digging through bulk uh, not having very much money at all to grinding into the thousand dollar range to grinding into the ten thousand dollar range and now um you know into the six figure range of just like trying to figure out okay i have cards at psa i have long-term positions here i have some short-term arbitrage plays uh for you by, by virtue of my knowledge from chris uh the tools that they use um taking some information from from people like yourself and really you know, I think exploring the minds and digging the content of a lot of the people who are really doing this and really understand the hobby. Because I think you can look at, I can look at Solemn Yu-Gi-Oh! or Yu-Gi-Oh! 2 or Vintage Yu-Gi-Oh! or you or a handful of people that like really understand it. Like they really get it. And what they say, I think is very valuable. I think there's a lot of uh, people who talk equally as much that have no idea what they're talking about. And I have the talent to be able to or I've been able to develop the skill to be able to say this person isn't quite as good as they're positioning themselves to be, or I don't agree with that move. You know, I, 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 don't, I, you know, point being that like, there's just a lot of noise. And if you can filter through the noise and start to draw uh, more and more patterns through time saying, Hey, two or three years ago, a very similar situation happened in a different hobby. If the behavior maps out the same way, then it's likely this will do very well. 
Yeah. And um, so, yeah, all in all, I uh, uh, live and breathe TCGs. I, uh, I won't go into too much more, but like, it's all I do at this point. It's like my entire life. Um, <laughs> <laughs> literally <laughs> eating cards for dinner. Um, but yeah, I think all in all, like, it's really been that. I, well, pardon me. My new thing, I, I want to open up a freaking LGS. I'm going to be that idiot. That idiot. <laughs> I, I don't want to do that. Yeah. Uh, uh, I'm going to be that stupid idiot. <laughs> Excuse me for those who are running them, but, but it's, it's, yeah. Mason, shout out to you. Mason that is a, out of it, but, but, uh, it's a, but, respect, respect. That's a hard business, man. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I interrupted you. Yeah, go for it. No, you're good. And, I, you know, my, to kind of just wrap it up, my goals for rainy day collectibles um, are to obviously grow and, and develop a sustainable business. I think just in my spare time, it's something that I really do enjoy doing. It doesn't feel like work, right? Me uh, doing envelopes and packaging or emailing people and, and doing the negotiation, um, even like meeting with the accountant, finally hired an accountant because it's like, I need to do taxes. I don't know what the hell's going on. <laughs> um, yeah. It's fun. It's just part of the hobby. It's something that I enjoy doing. But everything that I'm building towards is just like 10 years from now. So I'm just buying, I'm buying PSA 10s that I think are going to do well. I have cards from all of the hobbies and, and having a deep innate work and working towards a deep innate understanding of how every hobby within the collectible TCG space works. But then also like, how does wine work? How does fine art work? How does... Uh, how do guns work you know i wouldn't do that but like how does it work like how these are like billion dollar industries that are very real right like what is the psychology behind these why do they work why are people interested in these things um and even as of the past 12 months like why is crypto so appealing like what is it about crypto that makes people more excited than anything else so uh I am like a subject matter expert of like a niche of a niche of a niche of a niche of a niche. Um, and I'm uh, getting better at it. I, I don't think I'm good yet. I think the, the people that I'm chasing that I think are good, uh, I still have a long way to go to catch, but we're, we're getting there. So, And I think something you said, you know, just to, to dig down on it, which is so important, is that some of the different people you mentioned, like we all have, we have different skill sets. And I think it's like very important for the audience to to like understand. And the three of us here have different skill sets. And maybe Zakil has a combination, of, you know, you know, uh, you know, of some or sure. some of each, you know. But it's there. There are plenty, you know, in the Pokemon world, you know, someone like TCA Gaming, you know, like so successful. Like if you want to do what he does, which is run a Pokemon business and like buy up collections and sell them and and you know do it, you know, he's like he's a master i mean what he has been able to do right um pokey rev you know in terms of doing his building his channel and, and running that business and selling packs to people it's like a complete master a huge money maker some you know an expert in in that specifically you know in in, in that sort of process you know chris with these algorithms like you know doing something that 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 no one is doing trying to optimize this drop shipping stuff you know, making pretty much guaranteed money as long as the bots don't fail you. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. um, uh, and, and streamlining it, you know, it's like, it's like for people out there, list like what appeals to you, right? You know, that sort of 
And, and I think that a lot of people who watch my channel and, and are in my consulting or doing my Patreon, it's like, they want to do what I'm doing. That That's what sort of appeals to them. You know, I think a lot of people watching like ZNG Emporium, what appeals to them is doing what Z, what James is doing. I think a lot of people at TCA, you know, you know, now, and now I think it's important to watch everyone. I think all of us here watch everyone because we are interested in what other people are doing and how other people are being successful. And I think particularly if you're very serious about this, you know, um, it doesn't hurt being a hybrid and, and, and doing as many of these things as possible and figuring out what parts of each work, you know, for you. Um, I think for me, it's like, I, I do one thing. <laughs> I have an interest in sort of one thing and that's going to be what I, what I probably continue to do for the foreseeable future. I just don't have an interest in drop shipping. I, I don't have an, I don't have an interest in, um, uh, uh, at least right now, maybe sometime I will in the future, but, but buying lots of like low end slabs and like flipping those slabs, you know, and, you know, and so, some of what other people mm-hmm. are doing. Um, but, um, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, and I guess, I guess to summarize that, yeah, yeah, it's, it's knowing, I, I think that it's so important for people to, and I know we, this is a tiny, I mean, my, my YouTube channel is a tiny platform. This podcast is, is really small, but I think just your points, Akil, of like, like, there's so much noise right now. Um, and yeah, so many investment channels and so many flipping channels. And it's like, how do you, like, who do you listen to? Who do you not listen to? How do you figure that out? It's all crazy. Uh, did you guys see my video that I made about like PokeTubers? I don't know which ones to watch, which ones not to watch, or like some of the red flags. The song? Uh, no, there was like a red flag. I made like a red flag video of like things to watch out for. I did. I did see that one actually. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it's going to take time. It's going to take time. And, and um, I also think that, yeah, yeah, we, we've, we've had that discussion before we need to, to launch into that. What do you, what do you think Chris about, about all this? No, no, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm on board with both of it. I do think I will say this as, as much as I love doing my element of things, I think just having moved it now to being its own business, um, the well, like when I started out, I knew or I knew I'll say this. I knew I suck at having long term personal relationships with people. I move every two years. I have ever since like I was well born. So yeah. uh, keeping long term relationships with people and trying to set up like a network to gain opportunities through mm-hmm. was n- something I never considered an option. You know, like Zakiel is talking like, you know, LGSs will email him. That was never going to be like <laughs> I'm never anywhere long enough for that to, to really happen. So I set out with the intent of building something that is kind of agnostic to that effect, which I saw as everybody who I was speaking to who was good. It was like, oh, well, you have to get reliable inputs. I mean, I think the first lesson you, that people learn when they start trying to treat this as a recurring hobby, it's not hard to buy. It's hard to find. That is the hardest thing to do is to resupply anybody can get lucky once how do you do it again how do you find the opportunity again that that is kind of the the recurring element that when you have um whether you have like sites you go to that nobody else knows about whether you know you've got contacts that 
is huge. And that is something that I personally am trying to build a lot more now just because uh, thanks to the internet, I know I should know this, uh, but you can do that. And like trying to get those kinds of relationships going where, you know, if, you know, somebody gets a bunch of credits, let me know ahead of time, I'll match or beat buy list. Like I'll do that anyway. So like getting those kinds of things. So to kind of the point that Jake, you were talking about, you know, we all come from different walks, but I do think it is the combination that is, uh, I think will lead to the best strategy. However, that applies to you. I do think the different takes and there can be more but i do think just the there's always an element of i can be really good at this Akil's really good at what he does you know jake you're very good at what you do but you can take that whatever it is and form your own and go from there i think that is huge yeah yeah and and it's very interesting to see what works when and you know and i think that's where it becomes and also how much money you have and how that relates to what works best and what you decide to do. I think all that stuff's really interesting. Um, I mean, clearly the biggest winners this year were not me, right? The big, the biggest winners were the TCA gamings, you know, the big now, now part of it's cause they've been in it so much longer. And so they, they, they had so much, you know, uh, uh, um, uh, they, they had so many cards, so many boxes, so much of this stuff just built up that they were just able to sell at really high prices. But it also just shows you like how the power of being a reseller at a, at a really high level. And like, so I don't suggest that people follow me to make the most money. <laughs> like that's, that's truly what I feel. I think that for me, it's, it's, do you like that sort of longer game that investment, you know, collector type stuff. And, 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 you know, do you have the money to do it? Cause I think I, I came in with tens of thousands of dollars to spend on Pokemon. I could have spent hundred thousands of, on Pokemon when I came in and I would have been fine and it wouldn't have affected me. Right. It would have been okay. And if you're not coming in, in that sort of situation, you know, understanding maybe I want to develop some of these other skills to fuel the hobby to, to build that sort of stuff. And maybe Jake, maybe he understands that and I can talk to you about it a little bit, but there, maybe there are other people in the hobby who <laughs> wink, wink, have those skills, have been doing it, have been on the ground building and grinding that I think probably deserve your, your attention and, and respect around that. Um, but that's my, my, my feeling. Absolutely. Uh, agreed. Let's wrap up here. I think we're going on two hours. Um, <laughs> great cast. <laughs> um, I want a quick reminder. If you are listening to this on YouTube or on the collect and spec podcast feed, please subscribe to the new feed. It'll be in the, the links will be in the description of uh, either the video or the show notes of the audio. Uh, we appreciate your listenership and uh, subscription, I guess. <laughs> um, final thoughts before we get out of here, any last minute things you're looking at this week, anything outside the hobby either you guys are doing planning on how the hell I'm going to move to Pennsylvania. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Um, just working a lot, working a lot. Um, got a, got a bunch of things going on, working on a, a hopefully a startup type company, which might be related to Pokemon, um, which might be useful and interesting for people. So working on that, Got the Patreon, the, our first Patreon thing coming up this Sunday. 
So um, Rafi and I are preparing for that. Um, and I have my, my, my therapy job as a, as a social worker and, and doing that and trying to be decent boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> Time for date nights and, and relationships and, and uh, uh, other important things in life. So that's sort of, sort of where I'm at. Um, what about you, Zekiel? How, how's, how are things going on in your world? All is good. Uh, I'm waiting for my Clippers to beat the Suns. Um, and then Kawhi will come back. You might be waiting a long time. <laughs> We're going all the way this year. So that's all I'm going to say. We're going all the way. <laughs> all I can say is like, it's Kawhi is the luckiest man on the planet because every time he, he's just injuries, all the better teams every time he, <laughs> you know, although to be Best fair, player. Zaza Pachulia, you know, the opposite did happen to him back on the Spurs, but, uh, and they, they may have uh, won that, although probably not. Best course, player in the world. Anyway. As Skip Bayless tells me they were going to win if uh, the all-knowing Skip Bayless. Uh, but uh, no, they'll lose. Uh, the Clippers will lose, as we all know. No. And uh, um, they gave it a good try. But um, yeah. anyway, we'll, we'll see how this we'll see how the ending of this ages. But uh, I'm Clippers all the way. Um, anyway, my name is Zakiel. I go to Rainy Day Collectibles online. This has been another episode of the Pocket Change Podcast. Chris, people want to follow your content online. Where can they do so? Y'all can find me at Wolf of Tin Street on Twitter. You can also find me over on Patreon at the band community. Cool. And Jake? Jake at uh, YouTube channel Pokenomics. And um, I have an Instagram, Pokenomics with an underscore at the end. And then Patreon, Pokenomics. Cool. All right, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of the Pocket Change Podcast. And we'll see you next week. Cheers, guys. Cheers.